And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Okay, here we go. It is Tuesday. Happy birthday to the United States Marine Corps. Jason Hunt here in the bunker at World Headquarters. Sci-fi for me.com, sci-fi for me.tv. We are on all sorts of social media stuff. And uh, we do invite you to subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Uh, it is uh, a way for us to notify you when things are going on. Of course, it helps to have the notifications turned on. That goes without saying. Live chat is open. Feedback if you are uh, catching this show in replay mode. We've got an email address, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com, or you can leave a comment. If you are listening on podcasts, we are on all the players, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Double Twist. And if you have material that you would like for us to review, or if you would like one of our super-duper stickers, you can send us a self-addressed stamped envelope or send your review material. To Sci-Fi for Me, 1503 Main Street, number 305, Grandview, Missouri, 64030. And we will add that. Mrs. Boss diligently working on the calendar, making sure that everything is up to date over there. We will bring you schedule changes as they come in here. In the meantime, I think it's time for a chat. Let us uh, let us bring in Mr. Raymond Bolton, who joins us today. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Jason. So let me uh, let me preface this. Uh, we had uh, we have talked back and forth a little bit. You've got a new book coming out, and it is uh, it is uh, something that I'm not familiar with your work. I will admit uh, when uh, and I'm I'm familiar with Wordfire Press, which. I think is where you're through, right? Yes. Actually, uh, all of my previous works are published by Wordfire Press. Okay. Folder, however, my newest release is uh, an indie title. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, is it indie, uh, indie self-published or indie crowdfunded? Uh, indie self-published. Okay. All right. I want to make sure I get that right. Okay. So, um, so... Tell me a little bit about your background as a writer. Where are you coming from in all of this? You've done, uh, I, I will admit, to uh, not having as much prep time as I wanted on this. So I'm, I'm kind of coming in this as somebody who's not familiar with your work. Because uh, I haven't read any of, of your books yet, admittedly. But uh, it is on the list uh, for me to correct that. So how did you get started writing? Um, I began writing in the 90s, late 90s, in the middle of a bad marriage. Uh, there was nothing to talk about when I got home. I had nothing else to do. Um, I kept pursuing it. I, something felt right about it. 
And uh, then in 2014, uh, the year after my initial novel uh, entitled Awakening uh, was one of eight finalists at the Pacific Northwest Writers uh, annual literary conference, I felt it was time to publish it. I launched it uh, as a self-published work in 2014. Uh, it's done very well since then. Uh, well enough that uh, at Worldcon in Spokane, uh, I was approached by Alexi Vandenberg, who was uh, Wordfire Press's uh, publicity agent at the time. He picked up the Spanish translation of Awakening, uh, decided that it had uh, it, it intrigued him, and uh, he presented it to uh, several people at Wordfire. Eventually, uh, in 2015, on September 11th, the fateful day, uh, I got an email from Kevin Anderson, Wordfire Press's uh, uh, chief and uh, publisher, and he uh, told me he wanted to acquire Awakening. Uh, the book has averaged no fewer than four and a half stars across the internet. Uh, same with all the rest of my works, I please say. Well, that is, that's quite an accomplishment, and especially in this day and age where people are so ready to find things to, uh, to not be happy with. Uh, four out of five is a really good track record for everything that you've done. Congratulations on that. That is, that is an achievement in and of itself. So the so awakening I see here the cover it says the the Yidron saga am I am Yidron saga Yidron saga okay so how much of your work is because I'm hearing you know with the Spanish translation is that uh, is there a, a lot of your background your individual your personal background uh, in these works is there some some Spanish, Hispanic, Mexican culture that figures into any of your stories? Uh, no, not at all. Okay. Um, it's just that uh, when I launched Awakening as a self-published work, uh, it was hard then as it is now to get uh, recognition. And I learned that um, titles in various uh, international markets, Germany and uh, Spain especially, uh, were... Uh, getting a lot of recognition, it was a lot easier to get published. I had a client who had, uh, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the time. I had a client who was uh, connected to uh, a Spanish translator, uh, Joaquin Font, uh, CEO of Font Translations. Uh, and she suggested he might be interested in uh, translating the work into Spanish. I approached him. He was very excited about it, especially considering how well it had done on the internet to that time. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, after great deal of work with both him and uh, his uh, editor, uh, Sylvia Vasquez, uh, she's a published poet. He thought she could bring more literary content to the work. Uh, they published it. They did make an early misstep uh, in translation, so I brought in um, Carol Chavez Hunt, a professor of Spanish at uh, the um, at uh, UNM. She, uh, because she's fluent in Spanish and English, uh, native English speaker, um, walked through the work with them until they were all satisfied that uh, it uh, met their standards. We published it. 
uh, in the first week of publication. It became Amazon's number one uh, title in Ciencia Ficción. And later on, um, it was picked up by the International Latino Book Awards, where September of last year, uh, it won silver medals, both for best science fiction novel in Spanish and best translation from English into Spanish. Uh, so I'm, I'm pleased with the way that book has come along. Oh, I'm sure. That's, that's uh, congratulations on that. That's that's something, and and that's something that we've been looking at here, uh, as as we try to expand our coverage of the various different award ceremonies that are out there. Because there's there's more than just the Hugos and the Nebulas and the Saturns. There there are the smaller groups, and there are this science fiction society over here, and this science fiction society over here, and that one over there, and this fantasy group, and this horror group. So we're trying to expand and and become more aware of the various different awards that are out there for fiction so that's that's one i'll make a note of now let me ask you this is is it i've i see frequently the complaints uh, about anime translations when you get into some of the japanese animation coming over into the united states uh the translations for the dubs you know the english voiceovers uh, replacing or the subtitles uh, sometimes don't always get translated properly. How much of a challenge is it to translate a story from English to another language or vice versa and maintain the integrity of the story? Does it change a lot, a little, not so much? It's just a, gram it's just a grammar thing more than it is anything else? It depends on the quality of the translators. When I hired, um, when I set about looking for translators, I was told that my the primary language we're translating into, um, the, the translator must have, in this case, Spanish as his native language. Uh, Joaquin was born in Barcelona, so Spanish is excellent for him. Um, his credentials on the English language side are excellent in that he is certified, uh, a certified interpreter in U.S. federal courts. So his level of English comprehension must be excellent. Um, so those credentials were great. Again, um, the type of missteps that come into a work are as simple as uh, in Awakening, when one of my characters early on in the book said, what in the world have you been doing? They translated it as, what have you been doing in the world? Which is not the same thing, which right. is why I brought Carol Hunt into the, the book. She was able to then guide them. So I, I think you need to have um, speakers who are fluent in both languages, uh, one, uh, at least on one side, a native English speaker who is fluent in the other language and in, uh, a native speaker of the other language who's fluent in English so that they can collaborate and bring the book to a point where, yes, there are there are figures of speech that don't come across. They have to find the best possible uh, equivalent in the uh, uh, foreign language. Now, how early did the the translated works become a factor in the discussion when you were doing Awakening? Because you're you're self publishing it, and. I'm sure you've got the English version already mapped out and it's ready to go. 
was was had actually been out there for a few years okay and uh so it was just because of the difficulty i had um finding readership um and that's always a challenge that um i set about trying to bring it over into the spanish language and uh hoping that uh i could uh get it recognized in spanish markets and uh, maybe do a little cross marketing last night we were talking on on h2o about the entry point for uh younger readers and and getting you know those teenagers or the tweens getting getting the younger generation that next generation interested in science fiction fantasy and horror is the is the non-english speaking market that same kind of way or or is there are there discussions where people are saying, well, how do we get the Spanish speaking market, the German speaking market interested in these books? What kind of efforts and marketing, marketing programs, processes are there that might be different from something where we're just going to sell it in the States. Here's the English version, digital and print on demand. Well, in, in my case, um, it's it's been a, a, almost more of a challenge than it has been uh, for my English language works. Uh, books are marketed in much the same way with tweets, uh, and I've had to because I'm not at all fluent in Spanish. I speak it enough that I could pick up some of the translation errors, but I'm by no means fluent. So um, I found a um, another uh, translator who actually was a fourth party. Uh, in bringing the book to a slightly higher level, El Despertar, as it is called in Spanish. And uh, she volunteered to start um, creating tweets for the book because as a translator, she wanted to use it as a vehicle to launch her own translation services. So um, if you're not fluent in the alternate language, you need to have somebody on that side working with you to help bring it um into the Spanish language market in this case. One of the things that uh, has come up in conversation with various different authors uh, over the last few years is the burden of marketing uh, shifting from the publishers to the authors. And it is, it's one of those things where the expectation now is the author has to do a lot of the heavy lifting to get the word out about the book. And like you say, you know, that involves the social media stuff and any kind of online advertising and going out and doing signings and, and public, you know, public appearances and going to conventions and that sort of thing. When you first started marketing uh, Awakening, what kind of challenges did you face to get the word out that this book even existed? Um. They were immense uh, because I was a novice, not well-connected with the author community, not well-connected with the publishing world. So I would attend book fairs uh, wherever I could. I'd set up a tent if necessary, sell books at a table. I made a point of attending every book conference I could find that within reasonable distance. Uh, I was at Westercon uh, when it came to Portland, uh, various other events. And it was because Worldcon was coming to Spokane. And by that point, I had moved to the Portland area 
that that event was uh, a likely possibility. And so I bought cases of books, uh, contacted uh, the organizers for Worldcon while they were still in London, uh, conducting LundCon the previous year, got a, uh, an approval for a booth uh, there uh, and, and getting a booth um, at any conference uh, if you're an indie author is difficult enough because um, they're, all their attendees are juried. You must have a solid enough background that they think uh, you're among the upper strata and worth bringing in that your books are actually going to sell and you're going to contribute to the event. And so when, again, Wordfire uh, noticed my book, uh, I should note that at that point in time, I, uh, on my website, had been conducting um, author interviews for um, quite a while, uh, predominantly in author, interviewing authors who um, were in the genres of uh, thriller and romance and so on, uh, whom I knew. Um, I found myself at the Davenport Hotel in Spokane quite by accident. I'd forgotten to book a hotel room. All the less expensive sites uh, were um, taken up. Uh, Davenport was the most expensive hotel. And when I walked into the lobby, I saw that Wordfire was conducting uh, a book launch for the late Mike Resnick that night. Uh, I decided to attend. If I'd been at any other hotel, booked earlier, I never would have known about it. So it was right. sheer chance. Um, I went upstairs uh, to the party, introduced myself to the people who were organizing it. As soon as they found out that I was doing author interviews, uh, they began handing me um, their business cards. Uh, and it began uh, became an entree for me into the science fiction world, which is my chosen genre. Um, Mike Resnick, when he arrived, was very genial, um, immediately uh, said, yes, he would love to be interviewed, uh, as would his daughter, uh, Nicole. And then he looked around the room and said, oh, there's Nancy Kress. Let me introduce you to her. And uh, Mike and Nancy became my first sci-fi interviewees. Uh, a few years earlier, though, I mentioned thrillers. Uh, by chance, the publicist for Hank Felipe Ryan uh, NBC Boston's um, on-air investigative reporter who is a bestseller in the thriller world. She's won the McCavity, the Anthony, and the Mary Higgins Clark Awards. She asked me if I would uh, agree to interview Hank. Hank gave me immense credibility. Uh, shortly after that, I found it much easier after interviewing her to bring other people to my website. And then, of course, when I got... Um, Mike and uh, Nancy as my guests, the science fiction world opened up. And subsequently, uh, when Wordfire Press uh, decided to publish my book uh, as an author, that gave me immense credibility. So it's been a series of fortunate events, some coincidental, some not, uh, built on a foundation of efforts I had made over the years. And um, the... Um, conglomeration of all of them uh, finally brought me to a point that um, after Wordfire brought me in, um, uh, Alexi Vandenberg, who had then spread out on his own and created a convention bookstore called Bard Towers, 
a Bard's Tower, uh, invited me to sell my books there, where then until COVID shut us down, I was selling books uh, alongside Jim Butcher uh, and uh, Kevin himself, Claudia Gray, other authors of their caliber. And so it's been a series of events over the course of the years that has gradually brought me to the point that I can now start marketing Folder, my newest title, uh, my first step into science fiction. And um, I've got a great cover designer, uh, uh, Amalia Cicilescu of Bucharest, Romania. She designed the cover and um, I've hired a marketer to also help market my books. And we're getting great reviews right out of the gate. I'm at 4.7 stars on Amazon US and Canada. That's excellent. And I remember the Bard's Tower uh, seeing that in several different events, uh, you know, and, and going up and talking to the various different authors who were there. And your experience at Worldcon was very much like ours. Uh, when it was in Kansas City in 2016, we set up and we had a broadcast booth there. And after several conversations with the organizers to try to get them to understand what exactly we wanted to do, we were we were finally there and I was like, you want to do what? And and so now we're out there and we're broadcasting from the floor and we have various authors and editors and publicists that are coming by and they see the cameras and they see the lights and the, you know the, the whole studio set up there. And once they realized that we were broadcasting live, oh wait, you guys are on right now? Can we do an interview? And, and so I think we were about two days in before the lights started going off for everybody. And we ended up doing about 53 interviews that week. And that that snowballed into, you know, making various different connections like you're talking about. And, you know, being able to open up some doors to do more interviews and make more contacts. It is a, it is a, a very much a networking piece. And just looking at some of these interviews, it almost it seems like you're doing these interviews not just to get the word out about these authors, but also to learn from them. Because I'm seeing some craft, I'm seeing some process questions here. Is this, how much How much of your background is in the writing? Or did you just take up the pen and just start start writing your first book? You just decide you're going to be an author? Was it, how much, how much, I don't want to say formal I a, training. A, I come into writing from an unusual standpoint. Uh, for 41 years until recently, I was a um, high-end hairdresser. I had salons in uh, Tiburon, California, eventually Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, then I moved it to Portland, Oregon. And uh, for two and a half years, I was on a plane every Wednesday back and forth between Santa Fe and Portland as I began uh, moving my business to Oregon itself. Because I was high-end, I had the privilege of meeting a number of uh people, uh, the publisher, uh, the, the producer of uh, Sphere uh, was in my chair. I interviewed uh, uh, America's Cup skippers or got to meet them in my chair. Right. Uh, all of my clients were at the top of the their craft, and I began learning from them. And a lot of this experience then translated into my books, not necessarily that a, uh, an America's Cup skipper was going to be in the book, but uh, in the Bay Area, I took up sailing. I was a mainsail trimmer on racing yachts, 
And so when I wrote Awakening and it had a nautical element to the, uh, in the early chapters, um, I was able to make sure that all of the details were very accurate. Um, that became important because uh, when I read Robert Jordan's first book, um, there was a, a sailing element and the books were marvelous, but this particular element, when I read it as a sailor, I knew that what the boat did was physically impossible. And so I was, it, it, I was determined to make sure that everything, every element of all of my books is as accurate as, as it can be. Now, it, how much of a challenge does that present for your world building? Because in fantasy, you can get away with a little bit more fudge factor because, you know, you're making up worlds out of whole cloth. But there has to be some basis for uh, your audience to recognize certain elements. Do you find that real-world circumstances, real-world environments translate into fantasy environments uh, well enough that you can do it that way or do you make these up just completely out of the, out of out of whole cloth original you're not you're not pulling things that you know from the real world into your into your worlds in other words no not not the worlds per se but characters yes um, because I'm a few years farther along than some of the younger authors and because I have a great deal of experience with people in all walks of life, I'm able to craft characters that draw on these people, various elements about them, interactions I've witnessed, uh, successes and failures. So those elements do come into the books. When I'm writing Folder, however, which is set in and around Portland State, um, the book is very accurate. I've been to every uh, seen uh, in the book uh, when I visited Portland State University, I'd walk with a, camp, uh, a camera across the campus to make sure when I referred to details of the terrain that they were visually accurate. Uh, before, uh, <coughs> pardon me, before I wrote, um, well, after I wrote Awakening, before I wrote some of my other novels, I decided I would uh, try my hand at writing thrillers. And I did write a couple. Uh, they will never be published uh, because uh, apparently they're too accurate. Um, one of them um, titled The Message had to do with the poisoning Manhattan's water supply. I mm. uh, did a great real deal of research there. I had, been, I had visited New York. The street scenes were accurate. Did a lot of online research. Um, the biotoxin I chose kills in 36 to 72 hours. There is no antidote. Um, two pounds uh, would render the Manhattan's 900 million gallon Hillview Reservoir irreversibly toxic. Um, uh, one of my clients in Santa Fe um, was second in command at Los Alamos La National Laboratory, the site of my second novel. And uh, she later became the Obama administration State Department senior scientist in charge of the Middle East. And she begged me not to publish it. I told her it would be impossible for an individual to produce that much toxin. She said, no, but a foreign uh, enemy state with unlimited resources easily could. So that novel is buried. <laughs> it, it kind of, it brings me of mind of, uh, of some of the Tom Clancy novels where, you know, you look at how much detail goes into his world building, especially when it deals with CIA operations. And, and you think, 
how much of this is real? How much of this is him making it up? How much research has he done? And I like to think that it's fairly accurate, but then I then on the other hand, I sit there and think, well, if it was if it was this close to accurate, there are some people in in certain alphabet agencies who would never let this see the light of day. Uh, it, it, when you're when you're writing a story like that, does it ever cross your mind when you when you were doing these? Did it ever occur to you that you could be, you know, right, you know, creating a roadmap for some kind of a disaster to happen in real in real time? Well, the first one, not until after the fact, it, and and if if this book were ever made real the 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 premise were, were brought about it would dwarf 911 um in in that the entire manhattan population would be dead uh the second book uh involved um a um a dirty it began with a dirty bomb going off in uh the uh denver stadium at halftime during a football game and i wanted to make the ending even larger so uh, I wanted to set it at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, my client felt that it was doable because nobody could ever get inside Los Alamos. She did give me a guided tour, and, and that fits into in a certain extent. So readers would know if I ever published it that, yes, in fact, I'd been there. But I'd walked every square foot of soil uh, in Denver and New Mexico, where the book set took place, to make sure it was realistic, and then I cleared it with her to make sure that no, she—it's um, too long a story to go into here—but uh, that uh, I talked with other law enforcement uh, agents to make sure that there were no elements that uh, they thought anybody could actually take advantage of. But it's it, distantly possible. No. I, I re- recall watching Stargate and seeing some some of the behind the scenes uh, pieces about that, getting the support of the U.S. Air Force because of its accuracy of portrayal of the services, and I have to, I have to wonder how much how much leeway do creators like you get when you get it right, uh, as opposed to no, the police would never act like that. And the FBI would never act like that. You know, the CIA would never do that. The Air Force would never do that. This is all bunk. You can't publish this. It's going to make us look bad. Did you, when you were doing these thrillers that are never going to see the light of day, uh, did you get a lot of pushback on some of the details? You know, are people sitting there, besides the fact that you're outlining how, how you can wipe out New York, was there... Was there any, it was any, yeah, we need to take this piece out. You shouldn't include that specific element. I don't, I don't. With the second book, actually, uh, being in New Mexico, I got, uh, again, because of the people who sat in my chair, I became connected with one of the higher ups at the New Mexico State Law Enforcement Academy. He invited me in to have lunch with him. Um, he uh, provided a great deal of detail uh, telling me that, um, how, how stolen automobiles are transported uh, from Denver to into New Mexico um, with minimal contact on surface roads. And he actually promised to introduce me to a couple of other people who worked at the Law Enforcement Academy, one who had actually had been an FBI agent 
working on the um, explosion at uh, in in Oklahoma City, and um, <clears throat> he promised that, that if I needed their uh, advice, they would come in um, and uh, assist me with other details in the book. So I actually found them very forthcoming. Uh, they would give me details that again were probable, could be could happen, but at such a low level of probability. Um, somebody bringing a dirty bomb into uh, the stadium, Mile High Stadium in Denver, is virtually impossible. It right. could happen under the right circumstances. And I had to set them up in the book. Uh, but uh, again, it was such low probability that um, they, the, the story became readable, but the likelihood of it actually happening was minimal. Now, since these two books uh, can't be published, are there pieces of them that you can possibly repurpose in a different reality, a different universe on it? You know, say if you're going to science fiction, maybe on a different planet, uh, you know, take the take the bones of it and put it somewhere else and reskin it. Is that a is that a possibility? Have you thought about that? Well, I'm working on a horror novel, uh, tentatively, tentatively entitled Wraith, that I expect to publish early next year. Uh, during the course of it, um, two of the characters uh, visit FBI headquarters because the husband of one of the two has committed financial fraud, and uh, she cannot live with the fact that her husband is doing so. And there are certain protocols that one must follow when one walks into an FBI office that took place uh, in one of the earlier novels. You go through a screening gate. You may not have your cell phone with you. You put it in a locker. You're giving, given a key to the locker. Uh, various other elements that I was then able to incorporate in this book. So not all of them, but yeah, there's, there, there are parts that I can bring forward into other books. So let's talk about Folder here for a minute, because this is the one that's coming out, I believe, uh, is today? Well, actually... We bumped up the publication dates. The ebook has been out since November 2nd. Okay. And the um, physical copy, uh, I'm receiving, the, I have a, um, uh, the first proof issue in my hand. Let's see if I can turn this so the camera can actually pick it up. Um, I have the first proof issue here. Uh, I'm picking up the first printed copies uh, at the post office tomorrow. And... Um, so it is now the the paperback is now live as of today. Okay. So tell me what is what this is about. I've got a preliminary description of the story. You have uh, uh, a student at a university up in uh, up in the northwest up there who has the ability after an accident has the ability to fold reality. Do I, do I have that right? Yes. I'm sure you can describe it better than I can, so I'll, I will let you do that. The, the, the blurb uh, for the book is um, Eric Folder has just moved to Oregon to attend Portland State University when an automobile accident leaves him stricken with migraine headaches. The resulting visual effects that real-world professionals term an aura become pronounced uh, when he comes under duress, they leave him virtually blind and defenseless when he's attacked by a gang of street thugs, desperate to see so he can defend himself. He reflexively tears 
at the luminous lines of light and finds they have become tangible. When he tears them aside, his present reality folds away with them, leaving him in better circumstances with his enemies vanished. Uh, subsequent attempts, however, to fold his way out of additional perils leave him in increasingly strange circumstances until eventually his world becomes a nightmare. Well, and I'm looking at the cover here, and I see uh, what looks to be um, a, a, a Godzilla type of creature. And are we are we folding are we folding reality into different dimensions, or is there a little bit of time travel involved here, or is that a spoiler? Well, yeah, to a certain extent, the creature comes in in the in the um, the prequel. But I, what I will say is with each new fold, different elements of his, the, the book is quite like Groundhog Day, but um, gone seriously bad. <laughs> um, certain elements of his reality will repeat in each new iteration. Uh, but others uh, change. Good guys become bad guys. Um, he eventually folds in his way into a Portland uh, that is like Little House on the Prairie. Um, he's very much out of the current time. Um, and um, eventually he folds himself into a reality of Portland where uh, prehistoric animals walk the earth. Uh, people are clad in furs and uh, his reality is then no longer uh, anything even remotely related to where he set out. So how much of a challenge was this story to to make sure that you're, if you're folding into one one reality, making sure that you have all of the elements of that reality straight and not this reality? Because when you're dealing with alternate universes and parallel dimensions, you know, mirror, mirror, and that sort of thing, and you get multiple versions of characters. Were were you were you on a spreadsheet to make sure that the that the right version of that character was in that that environment properly? Well, I'm I'm very blessed in one regard. Uh, when I going back to Awakening, it's a very broad epic fantasy across um, multiple scenarios, and I was able to keep the entire novel in my head, and it was no trouble doing that with Folder, but what I was able to bring forward with me is when he learns to hitch a carriage for the first time, uh, as he moves into a new reality, uh, he doesn't want it to stand out. He's moved into a new iteration of himself, uh, new mother and father, and he can't afford for people to suspect that he does not belong there. If, if the real him were to turn up, it would be so out of place that they might suspect he'd gone crazy. And so um, little by little, uh, Eric is, he moves into a new body, the body of the actual Eric who had been in that reality before him. Initially, he's not able to tap into that, but gradually as he becomes more and more adept at, using his, um, at, at um, how do I say this, 
becoming familiar with the, care, the folder he has stepped into. He starts off as a physics major. One Eric folder is a botany uh, major. And he has to uh, interview with uh, his course advisor. Uh, and uh, little by little, he realizes that he does have access to the nervous system and therefore the memories of each folder he has stepped into until the morning he is required to hitch a carriage for the first time in his existence. He finds he can tap into that other Eric folder and gradually start drawing on the skills so that by the time his father walks out of the house, the carriage is properly hitched and he knows actually how to drive the carriage. Um, a lot of these skills are, uh, a lot of these things are heavily researched. Some of them, um, I live in this, the situation uh, so the, it's it's a it's a combination between online research and actual uh, lived events. And how many of these books that are beginnings of series for you? Are you are you planning out more than one, or you just are these one and done? And if they take off, then we look at doing another one, or is it kind of a mix of both? Wraith is probably going to be a, a one of a kind, uh, the horror novel, uh, when it comes out. Um, Awakening, I had set it up. Um, most people who have read it, virtually everybody who's read it, has agreed that I've tied it up so tightly at the end, there can never be a sequel. But it is so full of backstory within it, so full of history, that it was easy to create a prequel trilogy. And if enough readers, uh, pick it up, I can go on and create more. Folder itself uh, ends in an open-ended manner, and um, I've already started working on a uh, sequel to it. So it can very easily become a series. Now, has there been any discussion about adaptation? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of conversations that I've had, there are people that are... And, and there are people are of two minds on this. Uh, and, and I see this a lot in the comics industry, uh, the complaint that many of the writers there are just auditioning for the Netflix deal. When you're writing these books, when you're, when you're painting your pictures and you're doing your detail of your environment, does it ever occur to you that, oh, this would make a great scene in a movie? This, this would make a good movie. Are, are you thinking about the Netflix deal or, or at all? I don't really do that. But first and foremost in my mind is that the book has to be good. Um, and, and, and reviewers have been very generous saying that they really enjoy my writing, that it reads well, that I my world building is excellent. They can see every bit of what I've created. I want to create a good experience for the reader. And if that eventually translates into an adaptation and the odds against that are uh, as small as becoming a traditionally published author for an independent author um, as it is uh, for a traditionally published author to find their way into a, a movie uh, a television show uh, that is really outside the realm of what I can plan. I just hope that the book, is, the books I write are good enough that, yeah, if somebody reads it and they're the right person, uh, they can look at it and say, yeah, it would be great to uh, adapt this into uh, another format. Uh, that's not the first thing on my mind. When I write, I write something that pleases me. 
Uh, the subject of my novels is often very, very different uh, from what's already out there. Uh, people have commented about the Idron saga that uh, they're amazed that I've written epic fantasy with no element of magic to it whatsoever. Uh, it, it moves forward based on paranormalcy and telepathy. Um, when I write Folder, uh, to my knowledge, nobody had written exactly this premise before. There are other novels that deal with alternate worlds and stepping into another, other dimensions. But I try to create something original enough that um, if somebody uh, likes the writing and so on, they'll say, hey, yeah, we've got something new here. Now, have, has your experience with self-publishing uh, versus traditional publishing, have you noticed that there's one or the other that seems to be easier for the types of books that you're writing? Have you have you looked at, because we mentioned the comics industry, there's a lot of crowdfunding going on right now with projects, with indie creators that are sitting there saying, I want to own my own IP, I want to control these characters, I want to control this universe, not give it to DC or Marvel or Image or wherever. I want it to be mine that I can exploit. Self-publishing seems to be kind of the, along the same lines where it's yours. You're not having to worry about the publisher coming in and saying, we need to change this, do that, do this, the other. Has, has crowdfunding popped up on your radar yet for any of these projects? I've looked at it distantly. Um, I've been very fortunate to have found the resources to do everything I need um, to um, publish these books on my own. Um, the the Edrone saga initially, and then uh, um, I, I'm pleased that uh, Kevin Anderson um, adopted my books with virtually no developmental changes, uh, only changing three words in Awakening when he published it, keeping my original covers. And now with Folder, um, I found a brilliant artist. If she lived in the US, I could never afford her. Um, the fact that she's in Bucharest, Romania makes it more affordable. She's one of the best on the planet. Even so, the book cover costs four figures. Um, and um, I was fortunate enough to be able to dig up the funds for that. And so um, if at some point, if, if, if I need to put a project forward, and I don't have the resources, I'll look at it. I just haven't had to so far. Any thoughts on adapting any of these stories into another medium like comics or adding to uh, adding to the universe? Like maybe you have your line of novels and then you flip and maybe tell a side story or something in, in another medium? That's possible. Um, I think it's more likely with Folder than with the Drone Saga. Um, also with Wraith. Um, and maybe it's just because uh, um, I, I regard my initial books as my babies and I don't want to touch uh, <laughs> the others. Uh, as I move forward with more novels, I'm, I'm less emotionally attached to them. So, yeah, I'd look at other ways. I, I just haven't so far. You mentioned these being your babies. How hard is it to turn it over to an editor uh, who has to tell you what parts of your baby are ugly and need changing? Is that... Because that editorial process, and especially with self-publishing, you get a lot of authors that go in and they write their book and they think their book is, is all set and perfect. And that step is where a lot of the process breaks down for a lot of these indie authors where you have, you'll have beta readers, you know, people that'll do proofreading and copy editing and that sort of thing. But 
the resource of being able to get a story editor, somebody who can actually see if the if the book actually hangs together, is not something that anybody can just, well, I'm just going to whistle up my editor and do this if you're in independent publishing. It, was it a challenge for you to find those resources when you were starting I, out? Because you mentioned you not having those connections. How yeah, hard, yeah, how hard was it to find a story editor to to go through and massage the book into something that really was solid? Well, again, work going forward with an editor and, and even to somebody who's a line editor and, and has serious issues with, with what you, you've written um, is a matter of asking yourself, how broad an audience do you want? If you don't want any changes to the book, uh, it's very likely you've written for an audience of one yourself. Um, if, if you can't accept the changes an editor, an outside set of eyes is going to bring to your book, you're certainly going to get those responses from readers. So you have to say, okay, um, I can't see the book through other people's eyes. It's important other people take a look at it. And it's important that they do so before this book ever sees the light of day. Uh, if you have to be willing to accept other people's suggestions, other people's criticisms um, and uh, awakening, I tore away numerous chapters to reduce it to the size that it currently is. You've just got to, if you want to get it out there and you want other people to read it and view it favorably, you have to divorce your emotions from the process. Um, as far as finding other editors, um, I was very fortunate at the early stages of Awakening to have the legendary Audrine Buffalo, uh, who was an early Red Book magazine editor, take a look at it and go through it. Um, Audrine uh, was the first black editor brought to Red Book magazine um, at a point in time where uh, um, American magazines were just starting to consider bringing black readership in. Uh, they were doing uh, a study on uh, great figures they would like to feature in their magazine, and they chose Rudolf Nureyev uh, at the time that they would like to feature, and they asked her, who in the black world would you like to feature? And she said, Lena Horne. And they said to her, who is Lena, Lena Horne? And she's, her comeback was, and it's legendary to this day, how can I know who Rudolf Nureyev is and you don't know who Lena Horne is? She revolutionized the American publishing industry. She gave eyes to my book. Uh, she set me on the path to good writing. And uh, I was fortunate to have met her and um, a, a number of other people. Once the book is out there, you mentioned being divorced emotionally from from some of it. The the advent of social media, you have uh, that that possibility that there are going to be people who read the book, they read the they read the story, and they don't like it. And there are reasons why they don't like it, or there are not. And they'll take to uh, whatever social media and vent their spleen about it or they'll leave a bad review on Amazon or whatnot. Is, is the, the process of engagement with those kinds of responses a, a challenge? 
do you not engage? How do you handle the negative reviews? What's important for a takeaway for an author when they get that 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 bad your baby is ugly review once it's out there? What gets me to that point is the realization <clears throat> that there is nobody out there who doesn't have um, people who disparage them. I don't care if you're Frank Sinatra, if you're Elvis Presley, if you're Ernest Hemingway, if you're Jim Butcher, there are people out there who are not going to like you. You cannot get away from it. And so for me, I think the occasional one or two star reviews validates all the other four and five star reviews you get at the other end of the spectrum. Um, if you had nothing but good reviews, people would start wondering about, uh, are, this all, are these all of his friends who are posting these reviews? Um, so if you have the occasional negative review, I think uh, weighed against how many good reviews you have at the opposite extreme, it validates them. So I, I don't uh, get, in, involved in that at all. I used to read uh, about people in the movies and what, uh, what have you, who just don't read any of the reviews written about their work. They just go about acting and doing their best. And I think it's the same perspective. Somebody out there doesn't like you, fine. Nobody out there is gonna like everything about everybody. And nobody is going to like um, everybody um, completely. So uh, you just have to walk away from that. That's a very healthy outlook uh, for, for someone to have, especially in this day and age with the cancel culture being as active as it is. You know, you can hardly, you know, take two steps in the wrong direction and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're in that box where you've done wrong think things. Uh, is, is that, do you think that there's a point where we're going to get past cancel culture just in general, just the, the idea of you can't say that because you're not fill in the blank. You can't write that story because you're not XYZ type of person. Have we, have we gotten a little bit overboard with that kind of thing, do you think? I think it's at an extreme, and I think everything uh, tends to fluctuate. It's, uh, the the um, history is a giant teeter-totter. Uh, we go from one extreme to another. I think we may be at a tipping point. I would hope so. Um, things always transform. We just can't see which direction. And again, uh, like reviews, I'm not going to get too involved in it, but I, I do would like to see a little more gentleness, a little more acceptance um, going on. And I, I hope uh, eventually people get tired of all this negativity and uh, start to realize that, no, I'm not doing anybody any good. I think, I think that kind of criticism eventually goes back to the person who's casting it. And, and, and I, I think if enough people realize that and, and realize that posting nothing but negativity uh, doesn't shed them in a good light, uh, hopefully they will start to uh, realize they've got to back down. They've got to turn down the volume from a 10 to a five or a three. Yeah. Now, being in Portland, I'm assuming I'm hoping that you're in a in a place there where you're relatively safe. Have, has has the the mayhem and chaos gotten gotten close enough yet that it's a concern up there? Hopefully not. I don't live in the city proper. I'm about 20 minutes away. I'm out in the suburbs okay. and I'm in a nice uh, neighborhood, good neighbors, nice homes. And so, um, yeah, we haven't we haven't experienced that. Um, I've seen as much of it as you have. 
All right. Well, uh, Raymond Bolton, hopefully you can stay safe and write your books. And, and I will uh, let's see if we can get folder on our list to uh, to get a review out and uh, coordinate that and see what we can come up with. And maybe we'll have you back again for the next one. Jason, I would appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time. All right. I, I appreciate the opportunity. OK, thank you. And those of you who are watching and uh and listening, if you are listening to this as a podcast, thanks very much for being here. Don't forget, you can leave us a comment or send us feedback live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. Uh, we do have, don't forget, the 10% discount at, sci -fi, at superhero stuff.com. That's twice this week that I've done that. Superhero stuff.com, you get 10% off when you use the promo code sci fi for me 10. And uh, tomorrow, no guest in the studio, but we will be here because I get to rant when nobody's here, and that's fine as long as Mrs. Boss says it's okay. So that's going to do it for us today. Don't forget, we have a brand-new Salacious Crumbs tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, live, talking about Star Wars, all the latest news, rumor, and speculation. And back here tomorrow with more live from the bunker. So thanks very much for being here. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.